Welcome to another edition of the Richard Roper Show. That's me. I'm Richard Roper, which works out perfectly because it would be weird if somebody else were hosting the Richard Roper Show. Thanks to everybody who's been listening to the podcast, uh, emailing me about it, subscribing, downloading, telling your friends about it. We've moved into a new era with the podcast, and it's been a blast so far. Tons of stuff to talk about in the world of entertainment today. But first, I want to remind you, the Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing. All of this drives your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. All right, let's talk about some things happening in the last week or so in the world of entertainment and pop culture, movies, TV, etc. I want to start off with um, disappointing news, guys. Um, you probably have heard of the movie Bros, which was uh, Billy Eichner's uh, brainchild uh, directed by Nicholas Stoller, who gave us uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall and the Neighbors movies. And uh, there was such a huge marketing and promotion campaign for this. Over and over again, we were talked about how Bros was going to be, you know, a breakthrough movie. It's a major theatrical release, rated R, with a gay romance. Some were calling it the first gay romantic comedy from a major studio. You met a guy? I don't think I'm his type. He's like gay Tom Brady. What are you into? One of these ripped idiots with no opinions? No, I'd like someone who's physically very frail and won't stop talking. And I bet he's as intimidated by you as you are by him. I'm down for whatever. Yeah, I can do whenever and I can do whatever. Cool, whatever, whenever. GIF of Michael Scott dancing. Office GIF? This person isn't gay. Somebody oh my God, do you guys remember straight people? Yeah, they had a nice run. Unfortunately, even though it got great reviews and even though Billy Eichner was out there doing everything he could to promote it, very disappointing box office for bros. Uh, here's a story from the New York Times. There's no easy way to say it when the reviews are this sensational, the marketing support this big, the theatrical footprint this wide, and ticket sales are nonetheless this low. It suggests outright marketplace rejection. Wow. Bros, the first gay romantic comedy from a major studio, arrived to an estimated $4.8 million in ticket sales in the U.S. and Canada. That's uh, about half of what they expected. Really, on the low end, uh, Universal Pictures had booked bros into 3,350 screens. They spent at least $30 million to promote it. That's bigger than the budget for the production, which was about $22 million. And it just, it just didn't happen. Now, they're saying that there's great word of mouth. It could have legs as we speak, but it's just disappointing. And I know there's going to be a lot of... You know, Monday morning, if you will, Tuesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, quarterbacking about this, wondering if this is a, a rejection because it was a gay romance. I mean, I think if you look at all of the movies and streaming shows and documentary series and reality programs we've had in the last decade or so, the fact that it was a gay romance, I really think is not the reason it didn't hit. I don't know what it is. I, I hate to say this because I, I love Billy Eichner and I understood why this was being marketed the way it was, but it almost felt at one point we were seeing interviews where Billy and others involved with the film were saying like, this is an important thing. You got to see this. You got to support this because we want more films like this. 
Hey guys, it's Billy. I'm out here back on the street with famous and beloved straight man, Paul Rudd. We're gonna spread the word about my new movie, Bros. You ready, Paul? Yeah! Let's bro! Sir, Paul Rudd wants you to see Bros. What's up, Paul Rudd? You guys gonna see Bros, my new movie, September 30th. I'm one of the bros, so I gotta watch. Tell all your bros to see bros. Tell your bros to see bros. Come on, man. Yeah. Miss Paul Rudd and I are rounding up straight women to go see bros. I got it! Yeah. Go see bros! Miss, for a dollar, will you be seeing bros? Will you see bros? I'm sorry. Why, why? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm not Florence Pugh! Uh, bros, 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 bros! We had huge celebrities like Mariah Carey and Seth Rogen tweeting out, make sure you see this movie. It's opening weekend. Help the box office. And it almost felt that some people might feel like, well, am I being lectured to here? Is this, is this movie you know, my vegetables for the week, uh, you know, that my feel good about myself and feel good about doing something. And is it feels almost like a homework assignment. And I, I got to tell you, and then, again, this is my speculation. I, there's no, you know, I, I have no statistics saying that's why this movie did so poorly. Uh, but I will say this, I think something that got a little bit lost in the shuffle here, and I wanted to make it very clear in my review, and I, I think I did, and I'll continue to say so, is that this movie is funny as fuck, people. It's really good. Yes, it's a gay love story, and we haven't seen a lot of mainstream theatrical releases where the two leads are gay men. I get that. But in many ways, Bros was a tribute, throwback, homage to the classic romantic comedies of the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. It followed the classic rom-com playbook from the meet cute to the musical interlude and montage where the couple gets to know each other and they walk through the streets of New York. And by the way, New York, the cinematography was great. It looked like a, a classic Woody Allen film or When Harry Met Sally, a, a Nora Ephron type film. You know, this beautiful, stylized, idealized, romanticized, if you will, version of New York City. And then, of course, you get the, you know, the friends uh, of the characters and the family who really just exist to comment on the lives of the two main leads. That's their purpose in life, according to these rom-coms. And then you get the big misunderstanding and there's always going to be, you know, listen, I'm not spoiling anything here. You know, there's going to be a breakup and then maybe there's even going to be a big public declaration of love at the end. I mean, we've seen that, you know, that big climactic scene is what makes so many romantic comedies, whether it's in Harry Met Sally, when Billy Crystal's Harry goes to the New Year's Eve party and finally declares his love for Sally and she says she hates him. She really hates him. And then, of course, they cry and they kiss. Or Notting Hill, the classic moment where Hugh Grant's character, he comes to the press conference. He's with Horse and Hound Magazine, was the way he put it, you know. <laughs> right. Um, yes, gentlemen in the pink shirt. Miss Scott, I was just wondering if uh, it turned out that Mr. Thacker realized he'd been uh, a daft prick. <laughs> and got down on his knees and begged you to reconsider whether you would, in fact, then re- Consider. Yes, I believe I would. That's very good news. The readers of Horse and Hound will be absolutely delighted. <laughs> His uh, persona, and people realize, oh my gosh, that's actually that guy from the bookstore who was in love with the actress, and now they're going to be together forever. You know, you get these big climactic, so to speak, romantic scenes, and they have that in Bros. It has all of the feel-good aspects of a classic romantic comedy. So here's hoping, first of all, $5 million is $5 million. They were hoping it was going to make, they never thought it was going to make $25 million its opening weekend. I think they were hoping for closer to $10 million. But let's say Bros makes $4.8 million and then makes another three, another four, another four, and you know does fairly well. I think it will do very well in home release, 
it eventually could make its money back. But it is disappointing. I was I was hoping. I was cheering for that particular movie. So, bros, if you get a chance, check it out. I think if I, it's just it's really just got some great fall down funny lines, some terrific cameos. It's very much of 2022 in terms of you know the Billy Eichner character is a podcaster. What a surprise! We all are, uh, and a lot of references to cutting edge things and modern day celebrity cameos. But it still really has the heart of a 1995 romantic comedy classic. All right, elsewhere in the world of entertainment news, I found this really interesting. There was an interview in Empire Magazine, and the director of Jurassic World Dominion, that's the most recent Jurassic World uh, movie, Colin Trevorrow, he, now he directed it. By the way, this movie, just talk about box office, just recently crossed the $1 billion mark at the worldwide box office. But the director himself says, you know, it's maybe possible that none of these sequels really should have been made. He says it should have ended with Steven Spielberg's 1993 original. Uh, He called the Jurassic franchise inherently unfranchisable, says there probably should have been only one Jurassic Park. But if we're going to do it, then we're going to tell it in a certain way. So he goes on to why, you know, he went out ahead and did it. But I have to say, I agree that Jurassic World Dominion is trash. I don't care if it made a billion dollars. I don't care if it made a dollar. It's like... uh, a combo platter of all the worst elements of the Jurassic movies through the years where at one point it's like a Godzilla movie with CGI apex predators squaring off. Then it becomes a a James Bond type movie with exotic locations and colorful locals and dangers lurking around every corner. And then it becomes your classic obligatory cautionary tale about a mighty conglomerate. You know, they're creating environmental havoc and they'll stop at nothing all because they want global domination and obscene wealth. And it all ends up coming down to two and a half hours of CGI dinosaurs and raptors, et cetera, either doing battles with each other or human beings. It's been done to death. The first Jurassic Park, the 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg, is a classic because he he gave us basically dinosaur jaws, you know, set up some great characters who, by the way, they did return in this most recent film, but it was really kind of just glorified cameos, uh, Laura Dern and, and uh, Jeff Goldblum, etc. But the original was great. He built up the suspense. It was a great idea, this theme park with, you know, DNA artificial dinosaurs that act and comport themselves exactly like the real thing. And then, of course, it always goes horribly wrong. It always goes horribly wrong. Uh, Every uh, Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic World, since then has kind of just rehashed all that. And as I mentioned, just because they brought back Dr. Ellie Sattler, played by Lauren Dern, Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill, and Dr. Ian Malcolm, played by the great Jeff Goldblum, they didn't even really have them interact with the newer, younger cast members like Bryce Dallas Howard and... um, Chris Pratt until late in the story, and it just felt like everything was put together by a marketing team. So I actually happen to agree with the director of Jurassic World Dominion that they could have just had a one standalone movie. After that, it's sort of like the Taken films. You know, I, I love the first Taken movie. Eh, I love that isn't the right word, but I, it, it's a guilty pleasure. And it's, you know, famous, of course, for uh, Liam Neeson's uh, classic phone monologue. Why we just listen to that, even though I didn't even think I was going to be talking about Taken today. Here's Liam Neeson in the first Taken talking about that particular set of skills he had. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. 
I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. That's fantastic. But like the Jurassic movies, the Taken movies got more and more ridiculous. It's like they took his daughter. They took his ex-wife. I think in the third one, they might have taken his favorite waitress at the local diner. In the fourth one, they're going to take his goldfish. It, it just became more and more ludicrous. So agreeing with the director of Jurassic World Dominion. Now, they're, they're, they're saying that that was the sixth and final chapter in the franchise. We shall see about that. All right. I want to also... Um, before we move on and talk a little bit about Tom Hanks's crazy statement, I want to do a couple of quick sports riffs for you guys. As uh, folks who read and listen to me, et cetera, know I'm a huge sports fan. I'm, I'm here in Chicago. I'm a White Sox guy and a Bulls guy and a Bears guy and all that. But I, I just, I love football, I love baseball, the mainstream sports. I'm, I haven't gotten into pickleball yet, but maybe eventually I'll get some pickleball merchandise. A couple of things. We're about a month into the NFL and NCAA season, and there's been amazing games every I was going to say every Saturday and Sunday, but now it's every Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and even a couple of Friday night college football games. Great upsets, amazing plays. Uh, and the NFL in particular has had a number of just insane last-minute comebacks. A couple of things, though, and people might remember the original title of this podcast was Screen Time because we talk about everything that appears on screens, including sports. And Watching these games, and I've got the setup where I've got sometimes two or three games on at a time I can watch for hours. A couple of things are, are, are really striking me here, first of all, both in college and in the pros. I'm all for the instant replay because it's corrected some huge errors. I think they got to work on it like they did in baseball of getting it together a little closer. The targeting thing, I think in college, they still haven't figured out exactly when it is and, and whether it's a 15-yard penalty or it should be targeting. They've gotten better about that. But the other thing is the penalties. I can't stress this enough to the officials out there. I know you're doing your jobs, but Jesus, nobody's watching to see yellow flags littering the field. And what I've seen this year that we've seen so much more than in recent years, and I know there's meetings in the off seasons and they'll tell officials sometimes, hey, don't call as much holding on the cornerbacks. We need more offense or look out for this. But we keep seeing penalties for too many men on the field because the offenses have figured out when there's a switch like almost like a line change in hockey, and that one guy's lumbering off the field, if you snap the ball while he's still got one foot on the field, even though he's 30 yards from the play, they will call that too many men on the field, and you get a free play. So now they're, they're, they're working on that all the time. So all of a sudden, you, you, too many men on the field, you used to get it once a game at the most, and that would be when they actually literally just had 12 guys in the huddle and didn't realize it. Now it's all about the guys running off the field and the quarterback snapping the ball just in time. They're calling it and calling it, and to me it's like, okay, technically I guess it's too many men on the field, but when a guy's running to the sidelines and he's a half foot away and he's 30 yards from the play, how does that really affect the play? And to that same vein, the ineligible receiver downfield. So many times now they're calling that. And yeah, the linemen have to stay and they can only release a certain point. And listen, if they're nine yards down the field, it's one thing. But again, they're calling it where the center or the guard is a few yards down the field and the pass is 40 yards away from that. It's got nothing to do with the play and it brings back the play. And again, I'm looking at just the stats for the NFL. We're talking about through four games, the most penalized teams. The Broncos, 37 penalties for 286 total yards. The New Orleans Saints, 34 penalties for 319 yards. The Seahawks, 32 penalties. The Giants, 32. The Cardinals, 30. We're talking about eight penalties approximately per game 
and as much as 70 or 80 yards, that's one team. So if you're watching a game and it's like, if it's two teams who are among the most penalized, you might be seeing 17 or 18 penalties for more than 150 total yards in a game. Nobody wants to see that. There are four fouls on the play. That's why it took so long. Running into the kicker, number 34 in the, kick, the receiving team. Holding, number 95 of the receiving team. Personal foul, number 34 of the receiving team. Personal foul, unnecessary roughness, number 57 of the kicking team. By rule, all those penalties offset, replay fourth down. All you players, get off the field when you're supposed to. Don't be ineligible. But also, come on, officials. Give us a little leeway here so we can enjoy it without a break every two seconds. All right, why don't we take a break? I want to come back and talk about this Tom Hanks story, which is kind of crazy, kind of hilarious. And also, Tom Hanks, what the hell, man? I love, everybody loves Tom Hanks. But I've got a couple of words for Tom Hanks. But first, let's hear from Ro Khan about Portillo's. But first, Portillo's. They are known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients right down to the poppy seed bun. And, of course, the legend itself, the chocolate cake. If you are hearing this right now, that means you are alive and you are near a computer. Go to Portillo's.com and check out their entire selection of stuff that you can get anywhere in the United States of America. If you are blessed enough to live near a Portillo's, then you don't have to worry about going online. Just go to the store, go get the hot dogs, go get the Italian beef, go get the salads, the chicken they got. It's all great. But the chocolate cake is the single greatest item of all chocolate cake items in the history of humanity. Am I overstating that? (laughs) I am not. I am not. You go and you find out yourself. Order it online, go to a store, or if you really want to try something totally unique, the cake shake. They take the cake and they smush it <laughs> into a can with the, with, I don't know what else it is. I guess ice cream and some other stuff. And then they put it in the blender. You know how they do that? Where they yeah. take that cannish looking cup and they put it up into the blender. Next thing you know, <laughs> it comes out and they put a cookie on the straw and you're like, oh my God, this oh. is the greatest thing that ever happened. This is a warning to diabetics. It may not be perfect for you, but for everybody else, (laughs) it is the greatest thing you could possibly have. Go to Portillo's.com, find a location near your order online, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S, Portillo's.com. Welcome back to the Richard Roper podcast. I am Richard Roper. You may have heard about this. Tom Hanks was giving an interview to People magazine. He's promoting, he's got a novel coming out, actually. And I think it's about the making of movies, which would be a topic he would know. Uh, in fact, his novel is called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece. So it's going to be a look at the uh, long gestation of a blockbuster movie from the moment it goes into development to becomes a hit. It's a, a fictional story about a fictional blockbuster, but I'm sure he's going to draw on his own experiences, which is very cool. In the course of giving this interview, Tom Hanks said that he's only made four pretty good movies in his career. Four. Just four. And this, of course, set the the internet and the Twitterverse into a frenzy and a fury saying that's insane. Now, he has been really critical of his own movies in the past. Uh, 
Tom Hanks has talked about how he didn't really like his directorial debut, That Thing You Do, which actually has done, you know, become kind of a cult hit. Uh, but he thinks he screwed it up because he used too much of his own clout. Uh, he doesn't like The Green Mile, which a lot of people love. I, I think it's got some problems it's based on a, a Stephen King story, but there's a lot of greatness in that. John Coffey, you have been condemned to die in the electric chair by a jury of your peers, sentence imposed by a judge in good standing in this state. John Coffey is a murderer. I don't think he did it at all. Take my hand, boss. You see for yourself. You're talking about a miracle. This is the story of a miracle that happened here where I work on the Green Mile. But he didn't find it to work. He thought it was too much heightened reality, not naturalistic at all. Uh, he's talked about some of his other films where, well, now Philadelphia, it's interesting. He's not really criticizing the movie. He's saying that he probably wouldn't be cast today as a gay AIDS patient. And he says, you know, we're beyond that now and rightly so. Um, he's called Forrest Gump a sappy nostalgia fest. Hmm, that's a little bit accurate. But still, I, first of all, Tom Hanks. I mean, cut it out. You know you've made more than four pretty good movies. I think he was being a little self-deprecating there. I think he was uh, kind of saying it as an aside. Because I, I think if, if Tom Hanks really thinks he only made four good movies, for a guy who comes across as one of the more well-adjusted and regular, if you will, normal figures, if you will, like a guy, a regular guy, and I, my interactions with him have been relatively brief, but he, he really is that guy. The times I've seen him and seen him interact with people, he's a great guy. If you really believe you only made four good movies, you're the most insecure actor in a world filled and dominated by unbelievable insecurity. He can't really believe that. And I think even saying that, and listen, I'm not all, I'm not, I'm not all offended by this, but I will say this. Tom has been around long enough to know that if you make a comment like that for a print interview, it's going to probably have a ripple effect. And even if you're saying it jokingly, it's kind of an insult to all the people who work so hard on all the movies you've made, all the crew members, all the writers, the directors, the behind the scenes people, the PR people, the craft services, the editors, the special effects people, your stunt double to say, cause they're thinking, well, I made a movie with you. I thought we had a great experience. Now you're saying you've only made four good movies, but again, I'm sure he's going to go on Jimmy Kimmel or with Fallon, or with somebody in the next month or so, and say, oh, of course I don't think I only made four good movies, you guys. But I'm just going to remind people very quickly here about the long litany of great films that Tom Hanks has been a part of, has been a star in. And I went to the Tomato Meter, our friends at Rotten Tomatoes, and looked at some of the, the highest-rated Tom Hanks movies. Let's just say something quickly here about Rotten Tomatoes, too. Now, just because something gets a 97% rating doesn't mean it's in the top 97 percentile of all time. It means that 97% of registered critics on Rotten Tomatoes gave it a positive review. What Rotten Tomatoes doesn't take into account is whether or not those were four-star reviews, three-and-a-half-star, three-star. So there's, you know, there's a little bit of wiggle room in there. But in most cases, if a film does very, very well on Rotten Tomatoes, it's it's something that a lot of critics loved for sure. And usually is, is pretty popular, not always, but you know, and is acclaimed film, not surprisingly, the top rate Tom Hanks movies on the tomato meter are the toy story films, toy story one, Toy story two, the cleverly titled toy story three. And of course, toy story four and I, toy story films. I love myself. I would say, um, I think toy story three is one of the best third entries in a franchise of any kind animated or other ever done. 
uh, movies like Big, Catch Me If You Can, Apollo 13. Let's listen to a clip right now from Apollo 13. Love this film. Uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. We have a main bus B undervolt. We've got a lot of thruster What's activity here, Houston. Now? It just went offline. Oh, there's another master alarm, Houston. I'm checking a quad. Christ, that was no repress valve. Maybe it's in quad We've C. got a computer restart. I'm going to reconfigure the RCS. We've got a pin slide. fire doesn't make any sense. We've got multiple caution and warning, Houston. We've got a reset restart. All right, I'm going to SDS. One of my favorite Tom Hanks performances and one of my favorite movies ever about the space program. He, uh, of course, played Mr. Rogers in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. He played Captain Phillips in the movie Captain Phillips. He played Sully in the movie Sully. He's played Charlie Wilson was a real life character. He played in Charlie Wilson's War, Saving Mr. Banks. He's played a lot of real life characters and, of course, purely fictional constructs in films like Castaway, uh, Splash a very early Tom Hanks movie with Daryl Hannah, which is really funny and has, uh, you know, just uh, one of Ron Howard's first films and great performance also from John Candy. Uh, you've got Mail. The Terminal is a film that I love. A lot of people thought it was a little hokey. That's the one where he's the guy from the fictional uh, country who gets caught in the airport and he's, he has a, he's literally a man without a country. I watched it recently. It's terrific. And this is just a few of the, uh, the just, a, just a handful. We've mentioned maybe about a dozen movies there. So for Tom Hanks to say he's only made four good movies, I'm looking at a list of at least 30. Now, I will say he's made some stinkers. You know, you look back at Turner and Hooch, uh, The Angels and Demons, The Man with the One Red Shoe, Dragnet, not good stuff. But his batting average, Tom Hanks, like as you would expect, I'd say his batting average is about 800. I don't think he should be saying he's only made four good movies. Before we wrap it up on this edition of The Richard Roper Show, I want to mention here uh, Sasheen Littlefeather who has died at the age of 75. If you don't know that name, Sasheen Littlefeather was the Native American activist who at the 1973 Academy Awards took to the stage after Marlon Brando had been announced as the winner for Best Lead Actor for The Godfather. He had sent her up there and uh, Marlon Brando was protesting Hollywood's mistreatment of Native Americans historically in the movies, turning them into you know, stereotypes, butchers, savages, almost always, with a very few exceptions, played by white actors in brown face. And he was protesting that. He was also talking about the standoff at Wounded Knee. So when Sasheen Littlefeather took to the stage at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion on March 27th, 1973, here's what she said. Hello. My name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. 
it was uh, you know very controversial at the time. Now there's I want to talk really quickly too about this. There was this urban legend that John Wayne had to be restrained by six security guards because he was going to attack Sashi and Littlefeather and pull her off the stage. That's been debunked pretty much throughout the years. It was a, a story that uh, one of the I think the producer or the director of of the Academy Award he kept telling it throughout the decades and embellishing it, but it didn't really happen. But it is true that Clint Eastwood went on stage and kind of mocked Sashi and Littlefeather that there was a huge backlash you know they were making jokes everywhere about it and she really got kind of unfairly maligned and it took 50 years for the academy to finally officially apologize to Sashi and Littlefeather which they did this summer and they invited her to a program where they would talk about uh, everything that happened they wanted to do an evening of conversation reflection healing and celebration and the one thing I will say too about Marlon Brando's stunt and he did acknowledge this in later years he put Sashin Littlefeather in an untenable situation by sending her up there. Nobody, I mean, obviously some people knew this was going to happen because Marlon Brando wasn't there. She had to get credentials. She had to get, you know, access to the stage. So it wasn't like she just showed up out of nowhere. But I don't think most people had any idea it was going to happen. And they took it as, even though what she was saying, and it's a, certainly a, a justifiable cause for Marlon Brando to get behind, he should have gone up there and done it himself. But uh, I don't think that people generally realize what the motion picture industry has done to the American Indian. As a matter of fact, all ethnic groups. And people actually don't realize how deeply these people are injured by seeing themselves represented, not so much the adults, because they're already pain and pressure, children. Uh, they grow up only with a negative in image of themselves. and it's, it lasts a lifetime. And John Wayne did call him out on that, and that, and rightfully so. And said, listen, don't don't send somebody up there in your steed who you know is probably going to get booed and maligned because people are like, wait a minute, what are you what are you doing here? You're crashing Hollywood's big night. And Brando acknowledged that. He, he was gonna he should have gone up there if he wasn't not gonna accept George C. Scott didn't accept the Oscar. It, it you know, it had there are a couple of precedents for it. That would have made it, I think, even first of all, you don't put somebody in that position where they become defined by that for decades to come, but also, you know, you take responsibility for your views. Um, after that, Sashin Littlefeather went on to do, she, she got into acting for a while. She did a lot of activism, uh, but all always, always will be known for that moment. And it, at least it's gratifying to see that in recent years, people have come to understand that, that she did nothing wrong and should have been scapegoated. So rest in peace to Sashin Littlefeather, who has died at the age of 75. Even though I've made a lot of mistakes, I knew that I was doing the right thing. She called out the way Native Americans were portrayed in movies and treated in this country, and she was booed by many in the audience. I felt a lot of people did not understand. But it wasn't until now that she's getting an apology and a night honoring her at the Academy Museum. It's never too late for forgiveness. And to the Academy for its apology. Thank you. I want to thank everybody for listening to the Richard Roper show. We will be back with more new podcasts soon. Thanks to everybody for listening.